Amen. Well, thank you, Kevin. I'm Tim Rogers, um, lead pastor here at GPC. Thank you for making your way here. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. Um, i grateful for so many of the things that are happening uh, in and around our community, excited about that. And, and I don't know if you keep up on church trends like I do, but uh, one of the things that I've uh, realized that is growing over and over now and seeming with increasing measure is there's a narrative or a story around church in America in particular that says that the church is losing her influence, that the church is losing her voice, and the church is losing traction, particularly among the next generation. The Pew Research Study put out a, a poll, a research findings uh, last year in 2017 indicating that in the next generation, the millennial generation, over one-third of millennials are now technically unaffiliated. When they fill out the form about who are you affiliated with, then they would check the box, none. Not N-U-N, by the way, but N-O-N-E, as in I don't have a religious affiliation and nor am I really interested. That number, by the way, is up 10% over the last 10 years. And so we see a significant growth of the next generation showing disinterest in organized religion, for sure, and the church in particular, which increases the narrative and the question of does the church have a voice in the town square? Does the church, church's mission and message, can it get out? Uh, it is a broadly known fact that there's about 300,000 churches in North America right now, and, th and the other reality is approximately 80% of those churches, 80%, are either in plateau or decline. And so the narrative or the story around the church right now in North America is generally that on the whole, the church is losing her voice, losing her place, and losing her ability to influence people and the next generation in particular. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you so glad that you are here this morning? It raises a very interesting question, one that I want to address this morning, and it is this question, how in this environment that we now live does the church earn the right to be heard? In this environment where we have political divides, polarizing political viewpoints, no doubt about it, where we have a next generation that is reacting to authoritarian structure and organized religion, how is it that the church finds her voice? How is it that the church earns the right to be heard? And if I can push it further this morning, it's not just how does the church earn the right to be heard, but let me push it down to each one of us. How does a Christian, a Christian, earn the right to be heard? Because the church is not just a thing, it's actually made up of people. And so the question is, not just how does a church earn the right to be heard, but you as a business leader, not just a business leader, but a Christian business leader, you as a student, not just a student, but a Christian student, you as a parent, not just a parent, but a Christian parent, how do you earn the right to be heard? Not just because you're good at business, not just because you're good at parenting, not just because you're good in leadership, but how is it that you earn the right to be heard for your Christian viewpoint in the town square in which you live, in the spaces which you live, where there is a growing disinterest in what the church has to offer? How do you do this? And so this morning, in this series that we're calling The Lost Art of Friendship, I want to take you to an ancient city with an ancient story, look at ancient history off of an ancient document, to learn very modern and applicable truths that will help us answer these questions. Because the foundations of the church inform how you and I in the church and individuals, business leaders, parents, families, students, coaches, teachers, businessmen, leaders, function in a world in which the church on the whole is growing not just not offensive, but worse than that, irrelevant. So how can the church gain her footing? So if you'll go with me in your mind to this ancient city 
of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was an amazing old city, a key city in the Roman world. About 200,000 people lived in Thessalonica at the peak of its time period. A very lively, powerful city, a port city. As you can see, there was a, a number of ships who would do trade and, uh, with, with Thessalonica and all kinds of not only products and merchandise coming through Thessalonica, but because there were so many people traveling in and out, there was also plenty of ideas traveling in and out. New ideas would come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica's beauty was not just that it was a port city, it was also along one of the major Roman roads that was built during that time period. And so Thessalonica's benefit is not only could we do business because of the sea, but we could also do business by land. And so it grew. If you were to enter Thessalonica, you would come into one of the eight archways around the city wall, beautifully, uh, beautifully hand-carved stone facades along the way. You would walk down um, the city streets of Thessalonica, many of which were marble-paved. Uh, Thessalonica was on the cutting edge of underground storage technology to keep foods and other things um, fresher, longer. Thessalonica was a beautiful, strong, powerful city that had deep roots, deep roots in it. And one of the things, if you are a new Christian at this time, if you happen to be, let's say, the Apostle Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, an early follower of Jesus, and you wanted to take the message of the gospel, by the gospel I mean the message that Jesus came to earth, was died and resurrected, came back to life. If you want to take that new message, brand new message, and you want to spread it throughout the whole world, one of the smartest things to do, the most strategic things to do, is go to a city like Thessalonica. You're going to get more bang for your buck there than anywhere else. You're going to get to share with people who are traveling in and out from all the local cities in and around Thessalonica. And so Paul does indeed do that. He travels to this very city, to Thessalonica, and he sets up shop. And for only three weeks, he's in Thessalonica. In the book of Acts, we read about it. And he goes to Thessalonica, and he goes into the synagogues on, on um, the, the weekends of worship. And he reasons with the, the Jews who were there. And, and in the, the synagogues, and people begin hearing about his teaching about Jesus. And there we read that there are many Greeks who come, God-fearing Greeks, who come to listen and hear what's going on. We also hear about, by the way, in this time period, there was a growing um, feminist movement that we call simply the New Roman Woman. We read in, in Acts that there were many influential women who came to faith in Thessalonica. And so what happened in Thessalonica is because Paul comes and lands here and in three weeks has an incredible impact in this city that the Jews who were there and well-established hear what's happening and they see what's happening and they realize that they are in trouble. And the Jews, as Acts will tell us, the Jews feel threatened. They feel jealous. And there's a reaction in Thessalonica that is a metaphor for what happens across the ancient world when Paul goes to share the message of Jesus. The Jews are jealous. They're threatened. And what they do is they immediately, this is, it's amazing to read about this in the book of Acts, they get together some people of shady character and they begin to create a crowd and the crowd creates a mob and the city riots because of what Paul is teaching. Now, if you're a Roman city, the last thing you want is a riot because the Roman authorities will come in and they will teach you, don't ever riot again. And you don't want that. And so they riot. This whole Imagine... New York City in a riot. Imagine Los Angeles in a riot. Imagine Philly in a riot. I mean, this hits the big news line. Thessalonica is rioting after three weeks of Paul talking about Jesus. It's amazing. 
And so they go, the people, the Jews who are behind this, they go to the council, leading council, and they say, listen, this man is a problem. Let's go to his house and get him. And we couldn't because Jason, the guy in Thessalonica, Jason was housing him. So they go to Jason's house. Paul's no longer there, but they bring Jason in front of the, the council and say, this is the man who was housing Paul. And Paul gets kicked out of the city. He is moved on to the next city, and Jason is made to pay a fine for this, never to be brought back again. Paul leaves Thessalonica to go on to share his missionary journey throughout the local area. Later, he writes to the young church in Thessalonica that he started in that moment, that he started under the pressure and duress of the Jewish persecution. And this is like a young sapling that's just growing, and it's almost like the hurricane winds of Florence are coming to beat it down. The Jewish pressure in Thessalonica is profound. And so if you're Paul writing to this young church that just was formed, what are you going to say to them? How is it that the church that is just starting to form can gain a hearing from the people in a city that doesn't want to hear what they have to say? And here's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. He began this statement by writing this. He said to them, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Like of all the things that you do, young believers in Thessalonica, make sure. In other words, don't just hope for, don't just wish that, but actually be responsible for your brother and be responsible for your sister. Set up the systems that you have accountability and encouragement. Make sure, make sure, make this a thing that is sure, that you don't pay back the wrong with wrong. You know what's going to happen, but you make sure, young church, that you do not pay back wrong for wrong. Of all the things that you can do, you're going to be wrong. Do not pay back wrong for wrong. Further, but always strive to do what is good for each other. Now, here's our word, each other. This is a Greek word, one word, alelos, which is really translated for one another or each other. And we're looking at nine one another's in this series. And this is our one another for this morning. He says, but always strive, that strive word is imagine an Olympic gold medalist striving for the finish line with every ounce of whatever you've got. That's the strength of that Greek word. You're going to have to fight for something that isn't natural. Always strive to do what is good. To do the common good for one another. This is the most general term for good that we have in the Greek language. This is the common good expression. This is the stuff that you just look around and you know, it would be good if I did this. And you don't have to do a research paper on it. You don't even have to study about it. You just know intuitively, man, someone needs help. It would be good if I helped. Someone needs something. It would just be good if I helped. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what good thing do I need to do to get into heaven? People today ask this question all the time, which is why we give away this book, by the way, in the Welcome Center called How Good is Good Enough. How good do I have to be to get into heaven? And Paul is saying here, do the, do the common good. This is exactly what he's saying for one another. Now, again, Paul is writing to the church. He's for each other. So church, look around at the church and do the common good for each other, the people who identify themselves as Christians. But there's something different that Paul writes here. And what he says next changes the game for the church in Thessalonica, and I would argue beyond. And he says, and for everyone else. And for everyone else. Everyone else who, like that mob, remember that riot that I started when I was there three weeks, you know, that whole thing? Those are the people 
I want you to do the same good for them that you will do for one another. When you look at your brother and sister in Christ, I want you to look at them and see how can I help them and do good. And then I want you to look at your persecutors. And for everyone else, treat them like you would treat a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. I want you to do good for everybody, young church, not just for the people who claim the name of Jesus. This is profound, by the way. This is, this is a, a brand new way of approaching the world. And the reason it's new is because the leading philosophy of the day is a Greek paganism that has no concept of this at all. For us, okay, for us on this side of history, this seems a little bit natural, but I'm telling you, this is not natural. And I want to take you to, to a teaching that Jesus had to show you this. If you have your Bible, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 5. There should be a Bible in the pew near you if you don't have it, but this teaching of Paul is profound, and it's built on the teaching of Jesus. So Paul is writing what Jesus taught. We will see that Jesus is teaching what God the Father wants. So Paul's teaching goes back to Jesus. Jesus' teaching goes back to how God the Father commissioned him. So Matthew chapter 5 is where I'd like you to turn if you have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, that pew in the, <laughs> that pew, the pew is yours to take. If you can take the pew with you, you can do that. No, seriously, actually you could. All right, anyway, the Bible in the pew is also yours to take. You can take both of them if you would like to. All right. Matthew 5, 38 to 48. Some of you are going to actually try to take a pew with you this morning. All right. Derailed back on track quick. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Here we go. He says, I'm reading from the New International Version. He says, Jesus is speaking. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And this is all strange teaching, and Jesus goes on, though. He's not done. Look at verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Like, that's the teaching that you would have received in this world. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, Jesus is not just talking to Jews, but to the entire audience, Greek, Roman, who would, who would be coming to him. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, he explains it. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Don't go by that too quickly. I know reading fast, but don't go by that too quickly. God the Father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, when someone wakes up and curses God, God says, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send rain on your crops so you have food to eat that you can have the strength to curse me again tomorrow. Like, I'm not going to wait until you stop cursing me to make sure you are fed. I'm not going to wait until you stop abandoning me until you are taken care of. In the common good love of God, I'm going to give you sun. I'm going to give you rain. I'm going to take care of even those who push back against me in the most vile of ways, because that is the heart of God the Father, which is the teaching of Jesus, which is the commendation of Paul to a young church in Thessalonica experiencing heavy persecution. Take your cues, church, from Jesus, who took his cues from God the Father, who gives to the very people who hate him the things they need to keep living. It's insanity. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even, and then he uses this word, pagans 
do that. Now, that refers to a motorcycle gang. That's in the original language. This is where it started. No, I'm kidding. It, kind of. Pagans, this, this actually refers to a religious way of thinking, uh, almost a religion. This is, a, this is akin to a Greek viewpoint of the world, Greek paganism. This is paganism, not just we hate God and all that comes with that, and certainly not a motorcycle gang. This is a reference to a Greek frame of mind that is simply known as paganism. And he's saying even the pagans do that. In other words, their system is about cause and effect and about gods. If you appease the gods, they will serve you. And if you don't, then they won't. Like, you will get what you deserve. And that's why he's saying, in that world, which you're comfortable with, that you know, even people who, like, who are nice to one another, it makes sense if you love those who love you. That's what the pagan religions teach, right? Like, if someone does something nice, you should do something nice to them. But I'm teaching you something different, church. I'm teaching you something different. You should actually be kind even to those who hate you, because this is what God the Father does. It's, it's crazy. And what's even crazier about this is when you act this way, there isn't a promise that persecution will stop. So when Paul writes this to Thessalonica church, he's not saying, and this will keep you from being persecuted. There isn't that guarantee. Now, I want to take you through some history quick. So get back to the Thessalonican church. All this is background. Paul taught what Jesus taught. Jesus taught what God the Father taught, lived, created from. This is the heart of God through Jesus Christ, through Paul to the young church. From the time in Thessalonica, for the first couple hundred years of the church, there was so much blood spilled in the early years of Christianity there was a guy named Tertullian in the second century who wrote this. It's a statement you may have heard before, but I want to put it in context for you. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the kingdom. Because there's so much blood to write about that he wrote about it. There was so much persecution, so many Christians dying at the hands of the Roman Empire that it was a story to talk about. And he made this comment, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the kingdom. That was in the first couple hundred centuries of the church. And so Paul's voice back in Thessalonica now, several hundred years ago, this faint echo of do good for everyone else, do good. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And God the Father sends the Son in the rain and all that stuff. And now, it's been a couple hundred years, like we're just dying. I mean, the Christians are getting killed. Things changed. In 313 AD, Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome, and he creates a law, or an edict of toleration, he calls it. This edict of toleration requires that people, government officials, stop persecuting Christians. It's an amazing change, amazing change. The problem is, Constantine didn't live forever. In 337, he dies. Constantine has three kids. They're in their early 20s, late teens. If you have three kids and you're an emperor, generally they get whatever they want, I suppose. I've never been an emperor, nor the son of an emperor. His three sons decide their best bet is to kill everybody in the family. That way we get to keep the kingdom. Which you may feel like doing at Thanksgiving or Christmas, but they actually did it. They actually did it. They, they lined up the family members and anyone who was a threat to the, to the throne and just killed them all. Uncles, aunts, I mean, the way they did it. Except for two people. One was a handicapped kid they didn't think could be a threat to the, the throne. Another was super young, five-year-old kid named Julian. They sent Julian away. He was exiled. He was sent away, thinking there's no problem at all. Julian grew up, and as things would be, 
He grew up into a strong leader. And he grew up hating, privately, Christianity. Because of all the abuses that he had seen, his parents, his uncles, his family were murdered at the hands of Christians. And so he grew up learning the pagan philosophy and embracing it. In fact, he became known later on in history as Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate grew up, and in 361, he actually became the emperor of Rome. Only 24 years after Constantine had died. Julian the Apostate had two goals. One was to eliminate Christianity. The other was to introduce paganism. Instead of using the sword to do it, he used all different kinds of approaches, including eliminating Christian education, Christian schools were eliminated, trying to turn the church inward on itself, encouraging Judaism, but certainly not Christianity, writing himself and doing all other kinds of things that Julian did. But his end game was eliminate this abuse of Christianity. And here's what he wrote. These are the words now of Julian the Apostate in the 4th century. Here's what he had to say. He wrote this. He said, the religion of the Greeks, a.k.a. what Jesus just talked about, even the pagans do that, the religion of the Greeks or the pagans does not yet prosper as I would wish on account of those who profess it. So like fellow pagans, fellow Greeks, fellow those who have like hoped for a change in rule in Rome, the problem, the reason that Greekness and paganism isn't growing is because of us. We're being hypocritical. So the, the religion doesn't yet prosper as I would wish on account of those who profess it. And then he goes on, he writes this. But the gifts of the gods are great and splendid, better than any prayer or any hope. Indeed, a little while ago, no one would have dared even to pray for such a change and so complete a one in so short a space of time. What he's saying is, remember just 24 years ago, Constantine was the emperor? And now here I am. Our empire has changed from a Christian emperor now to me. And the gods must have been good. Who could have dared pray for such a big change in such a short period of time? The opportunities now for paganism are profound. But there is a problem that Julian sees. And it is a significant problem that is undermining everything that he's going for. And here's what he writes in his own words, Julian the Apostate. Why then do we think that this is sufficient, as in just having a Roman emperor who's a pagan is enough? And do not observe how... The kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Isn't that profound? Julian the Apostate, looks around and he says, the biggest problem that I'm facing in my empire today, Christians are too kind. I, I cannot get done what I want to get done because these people do not return wrong for wrong. They turn the other cheek. They do to one another, and to all of us, people who don't even share their views, to strangers, they do acts of kindness. And I cannot overrun a philosophy or a religion or a viewpoint when people are so kind. Can you imagine a world where the biggest problem with Christianity is that it can't be ignored because Christians are too kind? 
Because this is the world that Julian found himself in. He couldn't eliminate Christianity because the Christians were too kind. They cared for the dead in ways that no one else had done, and they were respectable, honorable in how they lived. This is insanity. Because you know about kindness. You know that kindness melts the hearts of your enemies, right? Melts your heart toward your enemies too, right? That's what kindness does. I have a, a daughter who's driving now. I didn't ask if I could say this, but anyway, I have a daughter who's driving, and I will tell you um, it's all safe and good so far. Anyway, um, if she were driving home at night and had a flat tire, and one of my enemies, I don't think I have a long list of enemies, I don't even think I have a short list, but anyway, if someone who I didn't prefer to hang out with were to stop on the side of the road and help her change a flat tire, what do you think that would do to my heart toward them? And you know the answer, because it would do the same to you. Because kindness melts our heart. It's like, shoot, did they have to stop? Did they have to do something kind? Now I have to rethink my position again. Like, now I can't be angry at you anymore because you were kind. (sighs) Right? I mean, kindness does that. It melts the heart. Kindness is irresistible. You can't ignore people who are kind like this. You simply can't. This is why when Paul writes in Romans, he says that, Do not forget, do not forget, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Why? When God is so kind, all of a sudden it breaks down the wall of our heart and we're like, oh, seriously? God has forgiven me? It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Can you imagine a world where the biggest problem the church has is, man, the church is just people are... Too kind. So I asked the question at the beginning of this talk here. How is it that the church goes about earning the right to be heard? How is it that you, Christian business leader, you, Christian parent, Christian student, Christian leader in your community, how is it that you earn the right not just to be heard on business but on Christian principles? How do you earn that right? And I'm going to tell you, I think as a church, we are seeing the answer to some of that question right out in front of us in this community. This weekend, coming weekend, we have the chance to go to Atlanta, and we've been invited to share the story of Grace Point Church and how the work in our community of asking the question, how can we help our neighbors, is transforming our little community. And by the way, it is. That people are being educated, students, children being educated who were not educated before. People have access to social service help that they simply didn't have before. There are relationship, relational networks within our businesses, within our township leaders, within our school communities that are strengthening this community because of the question of how can we help is actually making a real difference. I want you to know two other things, and I hesitate to, I'm going to just say it, we can talk about it later. A month, a month after Atlanta, we're going to be going to Kansas City because another organization that's working on church networking has heard about what Grace Point Church is doing in this community. And they said, we're having a conference with national leaders coming in, and we would like you to speak about what you're doing in your community because it's making a difference. The leader of this was on the phone with me for a couple hours and was just blown away that this was happening here. Like, How does a church do this? How is it that people are willing to give to and support and volunteer for the kinds of things that this church is doing in your community? I don't get it. Can you come and share the story? To which I said, no. I don't want to come share your story. No, I'm kidding. I'm like, yes, okay. So we'll come share the story. That's toward the end of October. The week after that, we're going to take another trip, not because we like taking trips, but because two weeks ago, 
Dr. Irvin Scott, Senior Professor of Educational Leadership at Harvard University, called me and said, I heard about what's happening through your church. We are starting a new institute at Harvard called the Leadership Institute on Faith and Education. Our goal is to figure out how we work the church and schools together across the nation. And I'm hearing about what's happening at Grace Point Church, and I would like you to come and share your story so that you can help shape the national conversation on how rural churches connect with communities in poverty. And so I'm telling you, when people hear of other people like you who are asking and answering the question, how can you help? How can I help? It makes the message of the church irresistible. Places like a Harvard will say, we want, we want the voice of the church at the table because you are acting in a way that we cannot ignore. It would be to our detriment to ignore the work of the church. And see, this is not my story. This is our story. This is all of our story. This is a story of the work of the church stepping in with kindness to have a platform to share about the hope and the life the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul teaching a young church in Thessalonica. Do good to everyone. This is Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, reminding us, God causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall, and the righteous and the unrighteous, no matter what. And this is a question for not just us as a church, but individually. See, we make up the church. You make up the church. The church doesn't just exist out there. You are a part of this. It's your story. And so I have a personal question for you. This goes personal for me and for you. It's a question, a diagnostic question I like to ask myself, and I hope it's an encouragement to you to help bring this down. Let me ask you this question. If you're thinking about how do I nail this down in my own life, who around me, who do you work with? Who do you lead? Who are your supervisors? Who, do, who reports to you? Who's in your class? Who around me needs a touch of the kindness of God right now? Who around me needs this kind of touch of the kindness of God? The kindness and the goodness of God that gives you, by the way, the right to be heard. It's not the only thing we can do to gain a hearing, but you know and I know that the, the church on the whole can make the case is losing its influence in the world, in North America. You can make that case. But I also want to tell you, the teaching of Paul, based on the teaching of Jesus, based on the character of God the Father, says that the kindness of God leads to repentance, that the common good matters, that friendship, this ancient text, ancient truth, ancient history, ancient city, ancient ideas, actually make a very, very modern difference. And as you're parenting, and as you're leading your businesses, and as you're going to school, and working on your teams, and all that you're doing, the question I ask is this. Sometimes I simplify this question in my own life, in my own parenting, by the way. I ask the question, what is the kind thing to do? What is the kind thing to do? Not because I want a bunch of soft, wussy people, by the way. Can I be clear on that? Can I say that? I did. Okay. That's not it. The kindness of God is a robust level of kindness that sees significant needs and figures it out. Kind of puts on our big boy pants and says, let's get to it. Let's figure out how we can love one another well across the board. And so let me encourage you with this question. You are part of the story. You are part, I'm telling you, you are part of a church that is doing some profound things where people around the nation are asking, help us see what we can do. And it isn't about that notoriety. I don't, that's why I'm hesitant to share that. It isn't about that notoriety that I care about. That has never been our aim. 
That is not my interest. My interest is not in that, but I'm telling you, it comes without it being sought because it's irresistible when you express kindness to people. And you know it, and I know it. It's just a hard thing to do. So for you and for me, who around you, the person that's on your list who you wish you wouldn't have to see, the person who just needs a little bit of help, the person if you gave an extra 30 seconds to in the office tomorrow morning, in the hallway a little bit tomorrow morning, would feel a touch of the kindness and goodness of God, and their heart would change. And you would all of a sudden, as a Christian business leader, as a Christian student, as a Christian leader, have an opportunity and leverage to speak and share hope in significant ways. What is the kind thing to do? Next week, I want to invite you back. My friend, many of your friends, Derek Slaybaugh is going to be speaking while we are on our way to Atlanta and looking forward to having him do that. After that, we'll be back in this series looking forward to that. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together around this concept of kindness and goodness. And I pray that you would give us the courage to be people who step into doing the common good that we see around us that needs to be done that doesn't hesitate too long when we simply know the answer to what good needs to be done right in front of us. It's not a hard question. It's not complex. It's just hard. I pray that you'd give us the, both the intentionality of thinking of our neighbors that way and also the courage to do what we need to do, that we can be people who show the kindness, the goodness of God, that our friendships will evidence the character of God, the teaching of Jesus, and the teaching of Paul, and the fabric of the early church from its inception till now. We thank you for what you do through these kinds of acts and how you can carry the message of the church where you will through that all. And we pray that you would give us the courage to do what we know we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.